Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Recorded live from the lobby of the Lion Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Lunch Agenda on Full Service Radio. We are broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in Washington, D.C., and I am your host, Julie Kurtz. You have tuned in for Episode 7 of Eating the Green New Deal series that's finishing 2019 strong here on Lunch Agenda. We kicked off with an interview of what the Green New Deal resolution does and does not say, and have spent subsequent weeks exploring how a Green New Deal approach to the food system might play out in reality. Talking with farmers, soil scientists, labor advocates, and legal experts in land tenure. And as we round into the last third of our series, we're bringing, we're tuning our ears toward food business and the role that private companies can play in bringing about a food system that supports a healthy planet, healthy people, workers, local ecosystems, and economies. So we'd probably be hard-pressed to find a lunch agenda listener who's never had a box of Annie's mac and cheese or a pint of Ben & Jerry's ice cream. We're fortunate in these next two weeks to bring a couple favorite brands to the table to discuss how these companies are leading the charge of food businesses, seeking more dignified work in their supply chains and agricultural practices that can help improve our environment. So today... We'll talk with Shauna Sadowski, Head of Sustainability for General Mills Natural and Organics Operating Unit, which includes Annie's, Epic Provisions, Cascadian Farms, and Mir Glen. So Shauna, it is so great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for joining Lunch Agenda. Thank you for having me. I'm such an honor. Great to have you. So Shauna is also the first guest with whom I share an alma mater. So in, in addition to her MBA, uh, Shauna was, uh, is a graduate of the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy at Tufts University. And I'm, I'm suspicious that we probably were both in the agriculture, food, and environment track. Is that... Is indeed, that, indeed. Yeah, <laughs> we yeah. share that. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's special to have that in common. And I, I know that some Friedman professors and students have been tuning in to these episodes, especially as the Green New Deal has come up in, in policy classes. So a shout out Fantastic. to Friedman. Absolutely. Shout out. I love, I love the, the number of students coming from the program now. It's just gotten better and better over the years, so it's, it's awesome. Yeah, it's a special community. So anyone who's listening, great place to check out if you are interested in food systems. So this is actually the second time that Lunch Agenda has featured a General Mills employee. So many listeners who have already listened to that episode, episode number 24, which is within the Big Food Star series, we're really lucky today because we're going to build on some of the material that we covered in that initial conversation between host Kiko Bourne and Annie's senior associate um, of marketing manager, Allie Kelly. So I encourage the listeners who haven't tuned into that episode to listen in. So Shauna, we have you have four brands within your portfolio at General Mills, um, as I mentioned. And I was wondering if you could give us just a kind of a brief overview of the four brands 
key sustainability efforts and and what efforts might be unique to each brand or where there there might be synergies or or crossovers uh, within other General Mills products. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd love to go into this. So the the four brands that you mentioned, we actually came together as a single operating unit uh, in 2018, so just over a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. And and what brought us together was our real commitment to a shared mission. Um, and we actually called ourselves the Triple Bottom Line Operating Unit. So we actually were very intentional with that name um, because we, as a group of brands, have special histories um, and, and, and with different legacies along the way, but we all are committed to, to driving positive outcomes for people, planet, and profit. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things that you know, really unifies us. And then we have, so we have, a, have an entire shared approach in which we um, go about um, working toward uh, the, the people and planet uh, outcomes with, first and foremost, looking at our supply chain, um, prioritizing ingredients, and also looking at how food is made, manufacturing side of it, and packaging. And then we have an external side, which is like we know that the supply chain is where we have the biggest opportunity for impact, but we also don't work in a vacuum. So we have to look outside our own walls and our supply chain walls, too, so looking to policy and partnerships. And then the third piece, which is really on the internal side, like how do we actually start to integrate this thinking of people and planet into all the ways in which we do business, Uh, whether it's your everyday business decision templates to, you know, um, identifying and choosing suppliers with whom we work, et cetera. Um, so I, I can share with you a little bit about some of the examples of how this shows up by brand because the, sure. even while we have this shared approach, we, we do have kind of like special stories, if you will, for, for each brand. Sure, yeah, yeah. Give us a little sampling. Yeah, so for Annie's, um, some of the ways that this has showed up is we, um, we have most recently um, launched uh, a mac and cheese that actually features a headline saying, this Mac helps protect our planet, um, which features uh, four different farmers um, who are making, um, are, are from Montana. Um, and this was uh, built actually on the first year's brother in 2018 project where we, we talked about the importance of soil. And, and the idea soil here, on the box? Did I just see like on, grass on the and first soils one, in the box? Yeah. <laughs> there was on the first one, yeah. <laughs> I think it may have been a little bit over the top, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, uh, if the market is me, then it was probably pretty successful. But if you want to expand beyond, yeah, the soil geeks, yeah. then yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that one we found we had to like revise a bit. So the second edition is a bowl of mac and cheese which is generally speaking how people want to <laughs> think about their food mac versus and the soil. <laughs> exactly. Um, but, but that was kind of our identity-preserved organic pasta ingredients grown using the regenerative practices. For example, things like cover cropping, diverse crop rotations, integrated livestock management. And we talked about the farmers on the back of the boxes. So it's basically like get to know who are the people and places behind your food. Yeah. Um, so that's the Annie's. And we have some other examples, but I'll just kind of give one from each. So Cascadian Farm, um, one of the things I'm really excited to, to talk about with Cascadian is the support for Kernza, which mm. is a perennial relative of uh, annual wheat. Yeah. And they have deep, deep roots that show promise to increase soil health, carbon sequestration, water retention, you know, helping to, to provide like wildlife habitat, all of that. Um, it that's was, a little shout out to the Land Institute, right? Yes, big, absolutely. Big shout out to the Land Institute yeah. because it was only through our partnership with them and through all the decades. I mean, they've been working on it for two decades, I think. Yeah. So it's relatively new, if you will, from a seed breeding perspective, but um, just an immense amount of, of work that the entire team um, has devoted to that and continues to look now that, you know, they're developed, 
they've developed the seed, how do we actually get this into the hands of farmers? Yeah. How do we get the best management practices on the land? So they're do, continuing to do really great work. And just um, for our listeners, so Kernza is amazing because we've talked about this in some previous episodes when we've talked in the soil episodes, the Sexy Soils episode, in episode two when we talk with farmers that that. Uh, annual farming, planting things year after year is really hard on the soil. And the Kernza is a perennial grain, which mm-hmm, never exactly. existed before on the planet in thousands of years of agriculture. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big deal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's really like the brainchild of the, the founder of the land to Wes Jackson, yeah. who, you know, really recognized that the degrading practices of these annual crops was only worsening our landscapes. And perennials, you know, we see it with forages, right? You know, and, mm-hmm. and alfalfa is a good example. And you see that through pastured, um, uh, pastured um, lands where the, the grasslands, they, they, they are there year after year. But for grain production, which is what, you know, is, makes up so much of our, our diet, um, is an annual. And it, you know, oftentimes how it's done is you plant you, you grow the seed, um, and then you till the soil, and you get ready for planting again next year and tilling again. So it's a lot more um, tillage, um, oftentimes with heavy inputs, whether that's pesticides, herbicides, other, you know, it depends on the management practices. But the perennial um, Kernza, it, it can stay in the ground. And right now it's about a three years it can stay in the ground, and then mm-hmm. they have to look for – so it's not – I mean, and that's the thing with perennials. At some point it will – the energy systems, you need to kind of reboot them. They need a reboot. Um, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So, but even with that, the three years is still much longer um, than an annual. So, sure. um, yeah, they've done great work with that. Wow. So I, I think there are a whole host of things that we could look into, um, uh, great things that, that, that these four lines under the, the natural organics are doing. One of the, the, the big projects, and this I, th- I think comes over, is under General Mills broadly, is this one million acres that, that General Mills wants to put into regenerative agriculture by 2030. Do I have that right? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Okay. Yep. So I'm, I'm curious how many of those acres, do you have a sense of what, what percentage of that million acre goal falls under, under your portfolio of those, these four brands? Um, how much of them are, are from the General Mills broader portfolio? Yeah, yeah. It's a great question. And one, we just announced that commitment this, this year. So we're still working out kind of the breakdown of which brands will be taking which targets. <laughs> um, so we, we have more to be figured out. But, I mean, our, our OU, our operating unit, sorry, not to use acronyms, our, our operating unit is really um, – key to helping to advance some of this this work. But the, the truth is our operating unit is actually still relatively small. So, I mean, just mm-hmm. to give you, um, when we have kind of looked at our own calculations just to see kind of how much of our, with all the ingredients that we purchase, what is our impact on the land, for about like 75% of our ingredients, that equates to about 75,000 acres of farmland. So it's not that huh. much, right? Wow. So it's still going to be small, even if we were to do it across the board. So what we see ourselves as is the accelerator to help to demonstrate the connection from the supply chain source to the product on shelf, right? So that box of mac and cheese where it says this mac helps protect our planet talks about the regenerative practices, but our goal is really to make it more broadly available and getting all of the portfolio in and farmers um, using these practices. So, um, And we're excited by that because we really, 
we, we, we have, you know, organic, for example, has been a big inspiration for a lot of the work that we do mm-hmm. with our, with the four brands. Mm-hmm. And there's so much to celebrate with organic practices. Um, yet we also know organic only makes up about 1% of um, the farmland in the U.S. here. Yeah. And so we want to be looking at how do we get to the 99%. And some of them might convert to organic, which would be fantastic. And Because, again, there's a lot that we can learn from in terms of those organic principles. Um, but there are some farmers who aren't quite ready to go the certified route. And yeah. so we're looking for other ways to invite them in um, and, and really using an inclusive approach and knowing that so many of these practices that we've identified in the regenerative realm are accessible to all. Yeah. So that's really what we're, what we're focused on. Yeah. I, I, I was at the farmer's market this past weekend and I asked one of the growers that I buy from weekly, I, I asked about their pest management practices and it, she was kind of reacted, oh, I don't want to be black and white about I'm, we're organic, yeah. we're not, but because there's so many steps along the way and it's, yeah. it's complicated. It is, yeah. Um, so I, you, you mentioned 75,000 acres and 75 products. I, I was surprised when I was learning about this that I guess I thought that General Mills wouldn't know that much about its supply chain. So the, I'm wondering, does this mean you have a really direct relationship with a handful of your farmers to be able to source this directly to know what kind of practices they're using on their farm? Um, I think of like grains going into a big aggregator, you know, to big yeah. grain mill. And, and, but it seems like you're, you know where things are coming from. Yeah, well, I, I love the question, and, 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 and unfortunately, we can't make the leap from knowing it to having that direct relationship with the farmers, okay. <laughs> because um, part of it is, I mean, one of the things that our team really focuses on is understanding where is the ingredient coming from, mm. um, what do we know about the farmers, what do we know about the practices the farmers are doing. That's a key initiative of our sustainability team. Mm. But that said, where we sit in the supply chain, like as a consumer products company, we are a couple steps, if not several steps, away from the farm level. And so we really rely on suppliers who help to aggregate mm. um, the farm-level support. So, for example, um, we could take wheat. You know, wheat is grown um, in Montana, and the farmer will take it, you know, once it's harvested from the field and take those wheat kernels to the, the mill where it can be then um, cleaned and, and um, processed and then sometimes also converted into flour. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there it will be sent to the place where we actually manufacture the, the in this case for pasta, right, because it's the flour that's used to make the, the pasta. Um, so it, there's a couple steps removed, right, from us where we sit. Sure. Um, and and that, so we're generally working with someone in between. We, we do have an exception in the case of the, the product I I highlighted um, uh-huh. with the, this mag helps protect our planet. We have direct relationships okay. with those farmers, and we did that very intentionally um, because we so much want to elevate farmers um, and what and who they are and mm-hmm. what they're doing. Um, but we wouldn't want to do that without that relationship, right? Gotcha. So we really wanted to make sure we had that. But in the vast majority of cases, um, we don't have that direct relationship, and we really rely on on 
good partnerships with our suppliers. Um, and so that's one of those things also where, like, certifications all, has also played a key role for the four brands um, that are in our operating unit because certifications such as organic help to identify what's happening at the farm level yeah. based on the very standard itself, right? So sure. that's kind of, and there's a fair trade similarly, right? Is it gets to the farm level, and that's a lot of the reason certifications have become kind of known as like, okay, there's, they bring integrity, they bring kind of that third-party validation um, for what is happening, and yet there's so many steps along the way. And like, Coco is a great example where mm-hmm. there's definitely many more steps involved, and you want to have a sense for what's happening on the ground, but you're relying on, on those partners to help figure that out for you, and then bringing that through the chain of custody to ultimately make its way into the product. Yeah, and Coco's an especially challenging one there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so building again a little bit on, on the episode 24, uh, General Mills recently launched this version 2.0 of its regenerative agriculture self-assessment tool. So this is a tool that farmers can use to understand uh, how their management practices on farm align with, with regenerative agriculture. Um, so listeners can listen to tune into that episode, but I'm, I'm curious if you know how many farmers thus far have participated in, in this tool so far, and are they, are they giving that information then to you or are they using it more as their own tool? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a great question. And we, so in the time since when you, when you first learned about it, um, version 1.0 was launched in 2018. We actually spent about 15 months piloting that within our supply chain, soliciting feedback from farmers, scientists, and, and other stakeholders. We hosted several roundtables, farmer roundtables around the U.S., mm-hmm. and engaged 140 farmers directly to solicit their feedback. So we actually spent a lot of time yeah. gathering feedback and then incorporating that into version 2.0, which we actually just launched in September um, through an online version. We launched the kind of PDF version, and I think it was in July, and then the online version, which is much more user-friendly in September. So we actually yes. are, are still in that process of collecting, but within the, with version uh, 1.0, we actually were able to collect responses from 26 different farm operations mm-hmm. that represented mm-hmm. over 25,000 acres of farmland in the U.S. and Canada. So that was exciting as a starting point, but we're also now in the midst of looking at rolling out version 2.0 because it's so much easier now that it's on a um, user-friendly, you know, put in your, your calculations and it spits out the, the information for yeah. you. It shouldn't take more than like 15 minutes. So we, we do anticipate the number will grow, especially as we're um, building out this plan with our suppliers in the coming months. Yeah, I thought it was very user-friendly looking through it. Um, I, I, are, are most of the farmers then, that, that are they part of your supply chain? Are there, there farmers that are part, that work with your suppliers? Or yeah, so when, sure? yeah, so well, we actually will have ways to make sure that when we are getting details on our suppliers that we are working with our supplier who is then um, making sure that those farmers are within the supply chain. But it is open source. That's the whole idea here mm-hmm. is that um, we want this to be able for anyone to use, uh, but we actually are able to track it for, for our supply chain, working with our suppliers to do that. So it's... Um, it's it's one of these areas where we have, you know, we're excited to have more and more people use it, but um, we also want to be able to track it for our own supply chain. And furthermore, we're also using it to um, 
track against the one million acre commitment um, that we made as a company. So that's also another reason that we want to be looking at that. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if you have a sense of so Congress through the for the through the current farm bill. um, There's been a lot of initiative to to actually for for government to more concretely. Uh, push for information and research on on different farm practices, um, things like cover crops that we've discussed on on this in this series, this Eating New, the Do- Green New Deal series. Do you see uh, overlap between this self assessment tool and some of the other research projects that happen either through land grant universities, state universities, or or governments, the USDA collection of data, or are they really kind of separate worlds? Do you see them as supporting one another? Yeah, I mean, my hope is that there could be support for one another. And, and in fact, even in creation of our own tool, I mean, we referenced NRCS um, to yeah. in terms of some of the practices that they highlight. So, I mean, I think it would be awesome if policymakers wanted to use the tool. Um, and, it's, and that's kind of part of it is it's, it's open and available. And we were very, very intentional in making it open source for that reason um, because any type of farmer can use this, small, large, organic, conventional crop, livestock. It's, it's for everybody. Um, and it can be used in, in a, a lot of different contexts. So, um, while we don't have that currently as a you know conversation point with policymakers, it's, it's certainly a possibility if that was something of interest um, that could be used. Sure. So I want to break out a beyond General Mills now. Um, one company is just one company, but you you really have stepped outside of of General Mills and played a, a leadership role in the business community through the Climate Collaborative and Sustainable Food Lab and other kinds of partnerships. So I was wondering, could you tell us a little bit more about why it's been important for you to step outside of General Mills and, and your portfolio there to promote sustainability in, in the broader food sector? So thinking about um, what is the relationship of one company to the larger uh, sector of food business? Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a great question, and I think it's one of these areas where, you know, so much of my sustainability work and a lot of sustainability practitioners' work in general is done in such a way to drive the biggest impact within their company, right, mm-hmm. and in food companies in particular. And so a lot of that is focused on the supply chain and the products. But we also know that we, we can't, we can't shift the needle in a meaningful way um, if we don't work with others, right? So we have to be looking to how to amplify that impact, both in terms of learning um, as well as helping to influence. I mean, they, they mm-hmm. work both ways. And so, you know, when it comes to some of the, the partners, um, you know, we've had, we've had many. And, and even, you know, when I think about it, prior to being uh, a part of General Mills, um, when it was Annie's as a standalone brand and, and I was leading our sustainability efforts, uh, for a while I was the only sustainability person. So I actually look to partners to help kind of be my co-creator sure, in yeah. some of this space. And the Sustainable Food Lab, um, who I've known and, and worked with since like 2007, 2008, when I was even at Cliff Bar, um, is a, has been a key, key partner in helping be kind of part of my extended team, if mm, you will. Yeah. Um, and, and so they have played a huge role in that. But they also are a convener, right? Right? bringing together others. Um, so, you know, when you, when you spend a lot of time in a company, you, you start to think that's how the world works. And, I mean, the, the same is true for, for probably any organization uh-huh. if you spend so much time there. And once you start to learn how others work, you learn. I mean, that's just the inherent nature of, of different places and the diversity, which brings so much richness. And so I think that's one of the 
key benefits I have seen with our partnerships is, is such a, an incredible learning space um, to hear others' experiences, to learn about their challenges. And then, in particular, with the Sustainable Food Lab, um, they make it a really safe space for this kind of reflective inquiry and, um, mm-hmm. and where you really can ponder these deep questions and, and, and help each other come up with solutions. Um, and and uh, I think you mentioned, you know, Climate Collaborative as well, and Climate Collaborative is, is, a, is a new organization, a project formed out of two other organizations called um, OSC2 and Sustainable Food Trade Association with the idea of really catalyzing momentum within a, starting with the natural food sector and, and expanding out, but to really highlight the importance and the urgency of addressing climate change through the lens of food companies. Um, and so that's been uh, a more recent effort, and, and, um, and, and I've been... Um, you know, we've been lucky to be part of it since the beginning um, and continuing to see growing momentum for what companies can do Yeah, um, maybe you together. could tell us a little bit more. I think, I think using a, somewhat of jargon, the, the wondering about the theory of change that drive these two organizations in particular that you mentioned, the Climate Collaborative and Sustainable Food Lab, where you've had been a part of that leadership for a long time. And, and I imagine there's some element of the companies that are in the Climate Collaborative and Sustainable Food Lab on some of them must also be in competition with one another. And so mm-hmm. I'm curious when it comes to these principles of environmental sustainability or worker equity, that the, anything that the values that these, these organizations are trying to promote and that really connect back to the Green New Deal resolution, how do the forces of competition versus cooperation really push these food businesses to do better? What, is, yeah. what are those dynamics like? Yeah. Well, I think I would start first by kind of answering your question in terms of like kind of the, the theories of change, sure. if you will, for, yeah. for each of them, because they take slightly different approaches, although they're certainly complementary. Um, you know, for Climate Collaborative, it's, it's really this um, opportunity to bring a collective group of companies to make public commitments in addressing um, nine key areas of climate change, so things like agriculture and transportation and packaging. Um, and, and so the real focus here is to elevate um, action and, and, you know, make a commitment, act on it, and then drive impact. And, and bringing this celebration opportunity of transparent accountability and, and almost like, you know, contagious climate action across these diverse businesses. <laughs> contagious and, um, climate action. <laughs> it, it's really interesting because, like, Climate Day is um, when this, uh, when, when Climate Collaborative was first kicked off. Um, and this, actually, I don't even know if it was called Climate Day at that point. It was in 2017 as, as a key part of the Expo West um, Natural Products mm-hmm. Show. And, and the, the, each year now, it has continued um, as, as a way to kind of kickstart the trade show. And the number of people who have come, and, and this is coming out a full day in advance of an already long, you know, four-day Expo trade show. So they're coming in, and we have, and they have to come in for five days. I think last year, I mean, there were over 500 people at the very early 9 a.m. session. It was impressive. Mm. Um, so there is this real appetite, and it is contagious. It's contagious. <laughs> and listeners, they can find climatecollaborative.org.com if they want to, because we may have p- uh, listeners that are working in the food business industry and, and would be really interested in, in being part of it, because it's open to anyone. Is that true? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And so, and then the, the, the second one, Sustainable Food Lab, um, they've been at this work for, for quite some time. Um, and they really take a, a systems thinking approach. And the idea is that, like, in order to really drive change, you have to understand this big picture context of landscapes and markets and diverse perspectives of all players in the food system, mm-hmm. which is a big ask, right? Yeah. But, but, you know, and then looking at how we can connect these big goals like addressing climate change and poverty and soil health with practical solutions. And, and one of the key things that the Sustainable Food Lab does, um, they, they offer everything from like they'll do, you know, providing tools and frameworks and consulting and stakeholder, you know, collectives and, and engagement. But one of the things I have most benefited from is something that they put on called learning journeys. Mm-hmm. And it's essentially an opportunity to go and um, immerse yourself within the context of a specific place. And, and, and they do, because their work is global, um, they do this, um, you know, in different parts of the world. And then certainly um, I've, I've had the opportunity um, to do events here in California, some in Maryland, um, but I've also gone to Peru and, and Mexico. Wow. Um, and, and, and really they, they tailor these learning journeys in such a way where you're getting a, this diverse perspective. So in Mexico and, you know, I was in Chiapas and, and learning from coffee growers and smallholder coffee growers. And so mm-hmm. you have a translator and, you know, the farmer and the translator and you're talking about poverty and like how much land do you need to um, you know be to, to make a living and how do you you know how is your family involved and where do you mm-hmm. where do your children go and you start to get really um, immersed in in their experience um, but wow. and it's just it's a real rich learning um, that they do and you after these like full day of visiting different types of farms and farm settings, you come back with the group, and these are often, these are all business leaders coming from different companies, mm-hmm. um, and you share what you, what, you, what you heard and what you reflected on. It's, it's this kind of reflective inquiry process, and I find it to be incredibly rich wow. um, and powerful. And so getting to your other questions there in terms of that cooperation versus competition, yeah. I, you know, I think that there's... I think it's true that in so many ways, you know, business is often positioned as this competitive, like, win-lose, like, you can't win if, if, if I win, I get this one or the other. And the, the truth of the matter is that I don't think any of us can afford to think about the current crisis as a competition or a point of differentiation, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if I win at climate change, <laughs> that's, that's, that's right. like, what? <laughs> so um, we, we really truly need, like, all hands on deck, yeah. right? And so I, I think that... Um, a lot of this work, we the way we terminology, the terminology we use is often like the pre-competitive space, right? Yeah. This is the pre-competitive mm-hmm. landscape, and you know, in the you know, if you really kind of break this down, if you start to think about like so much of of what we're talking about is our relationship with nature and the natural resources mm-hmm. that we depend upon. Yeah, and you know, if I take all the water from my area because I happen to have a well but that has impacts downstream. We know that happens already, right? So it's, it's essentially the tragedy of the commons issue that we're trying to um, address from the upfront as opposed to downstream and reacting to what are the consequences of the decisions that were made further on. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, from being in this world for as long as I have been now, it's, um, you know, the the idea here is we really need to look to our peers and applaud efforts where it's being done in a meaningful way 
to continue driving our own change as well, but as much as possible to share and, and to, to share what we're learning. And, and it's, again, going back to the self-assessment, one of the reasons we were so keen to have it open source is that we have no desire to keep this proprietary. We yeah. want to make this accessible um, for everybody to, to, to use, but then also to provide feedback on, right? Because we're only going to get better if we're talking yeah. um, and we're learning. Well, I think it's really encouraging, too. And I think about some of our listeners may have a, a more skeptical view of, of private business's role, even though private business is most of the food system. But, you know, there are plenty of, we see bad behavior in, 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 in all uh, sectors. But to yeah. see this really um, powerful space where you've got this collaborative, this pre-competitive space, and there's such um, really meaningful reflective going on, learning and this sort of humility of going to different places and trying to um, adopt a different perspective. I think that's really moving and really encouraging to hear um, not only General Mills, but all of these other companies that are involved in the Sustainable Food Lab and, of course, Climate Collaborative, too, and how they're moving in that way. We need to take a quick break, and then we will come back and talk some more. Uh, We'll be right back. Hey, welcome back to Lunch Agenda, listeners. I'm your host, Julie Kurtz. Today, we are talking with Shauna Sadowski, Head of Sustainability for General Mills Natural and Organics Operating Unit. We are going to dive back in to talk a bit about how the Green New Deal relates to food business. So, the the Green New Deal, we've been touching on this these past uh, episodes. It calls for a food system that, quote, works collaboratively collaboratively with farmers and ranchers in the United States to remove pollution and greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture while supporting family farming, investing in sustainable agriculture and soil health. Um, It also wants to ensure universal access to healthy food. It calls for reimagining of how we include communities in that too often have been excluded from decision making and, and private and public wealth and resources in this country. So I I want to dive back in a little bit to this regenerative uh, agriculture self-assessment tool because General Mills has included components of holistic wealth management and community engagement in this tool. And those are things that typically fall outside of the expected scope of sustainability. And so I was really curious, Shauna, what was behind bringing those components, including those in the tool? Yeah, so I think, I mean, part of it really comes down to um, the way that we see sustainability is it includes both environmental and social. Mm-hmm. So it, you, it's not just one. And, and that's in part, that, that's the way we define it. You're totally right that different 
groups and organizations define it in different ways. Um, but sustainability really is about including both of them and, and, and also thinking about that from the business and even, even the name in which we call ourselves that triple bottom line, I would mm-hmm. throw in the economic piece. So it's a much more holistic approach to um, what sustainability means. And so wealth management and community engagement in that respect, it falls into the scope of it. Um, and, and within even how we frame regenerative agriculture, um, I know we didn't actually um, get too much into this, but um, I think it was covered in some of the, the previous episodes. But the way in which we're defining regenerative agriculture, it's surrounding um, three key outcomes of interest one of which is soil health, the second of which is biodiversity, and the third of which is economic resilience for farming communities. Mm. And so the, the economic viability within farming operations is, is a critical element of the work. Uh, so, and and the, the reason for that, and I, I'm sure this is not news for many of your, your listeners, but, um, you know, in 2018 alone, less than half of U.S. farms turned a profit. Mm-hmm. So that's it's so important, and, 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 you know, every day I'm opening up and seeing my news feed and just looking at the financial crisis that is bearing down on so many farmers here yeah. in the U.S., in Canada, um, it is not an isolated issue, and it's one for which we, we all of us, have a vested interest in trying to figure out what we can do. Um, and, you know, we also believe that environmental and economic issues in agriculture are deeply intertwined. Yeah. So that's something that... Um, we see as, as, again, being connected and, and looking for, for how and what we can do to elevate that. And so um, what's interesting is we, we did have it in version 1.0, the self-assessment. Um, we specifically included holistic wealth management and community engagement. But after the feedback rounds, which I, which I shared with you, we mm-hmm. actually found a couple of things. One, mm-hmm. um, that sharing that economic information can be really sensitive for farmers. Yeah. And so... Um, they don't necessarily mm-hmm. want to do that, and nor do they want to be asked. So, okay, good learning. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, two, uh, that that holistic wealth management and community engagement are not yet as quantitatively associated with the outcomes we're seeking to have um, as the mm-hmm. other areas. So, for for that reason, we actually in, included them as above and beyond practices to include farmers. Mm-hmm. To encourage farmers to reflect on those important topics, but not to quantitatively assess the practices. So mm, we okay. did make some adjustments, still trying to say, yes, this is still important, but recognizing that we don't have good ways to um, say what threshold, what tiers you're at, um, because we just don't have that data right now. Yeah. I think about some of the overlap between terms like regenerative agriculture, organic agroecology and agroecology in particular really includes in its sort of the it's more advanced the the above and beyond stages of agroecology they talk a lot about the social aspects so um, when I read that in the assessment tool it really reminded me of uh, especially you know because I spent time living in Latin America and so that's a very present part of these food systems the agroecological systems is the social element so I I thought that's a really powerful thing to include but and it's interesting to hear how it was the challenge is if it, what a delicate issue it is at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So we'll talk about this uh, more next week, but I wanted to touch on it with, with General Mills to hear. Uh, so one of the things in the, the Green New Deal resolution is that it, it wants to address climate goals while also, quote, promoting justice and equity by stopping current, preventing future, and repairing historic oppression of indigenous peoples, communities of color, migrant communities, the industrialized communities, 
depopulated rural communities, the poor, low-income workers, women, the elderly, the unhoused, people with disabilities, and youth. And they refer to this in the resolution as frontline and vulnerable communities. And I, I imagine that a lot of General Mills, the, the, the sort of raw commodities that, that are a part of your supply chain come from farms that aren't necessarily hiring workers outside the family. So in, in episode three, we, we spoke with Jose Oliva, who's a, a labor advocate and was working in this space throughout the food system for many, many years. And I was wondering, are there products, though, in your, your portfolio supply chain that you really have to give a t- extra attention to labor practices? Um, obviously, labor practices can happen on just a family farm, but... Um, where there may be hiring more workers, and that's a, a real consideration for you guys. Yeah, you know, I, I would say that, I mean, labor practices, be it owner-operator, family members, or hired labor, it, it matters for any farm. So yeah. even even within our own, certainly, you know, it, it really tremendously varies by ingredient. And so, you know, and it, and it really does vary by location. I mean, that's one of the reasons we really try to understand where, uh, where we're sourcing from and, and the practices that are, are taking place. Because even on a family farm, it's really important to know, like, what's, what's that situation look like and, and how's it being done. So, um, and so it's, it's important that we're, we're addressing it. Um, and, you know, for us, what we did as our operating unit came together this, this past year is we identified 14 kind of collective priority ingredients based on purchasing volume and risk. Mm. And we, we completed an in-depth risk assessment for each ingredient and developed minimum sourcing requirements mm. specifically to address some of the farm-level risks that include labor in addition to an environmental issues. So um, essentially it kind of creates this uh, kind of floor. So we, we yeah. want to go above and beyond, but it's also saying we need to kind of safeguard um, with these, these baselines in place. Yeah, and I'm and assuming so, that maybe fruit and milk are kind of are, are some of them in your supply chain that are the possible flag issues, or yeah, are there other Yeah, things? well, you know, it's interesting you say milk because dairy is actually one of the trickier ones to, for which we're actually still figuring out the minimum sure. requirement. Well, and we'll be talking and, a lot about dairy next week, so. <laughs> but, yeah. but it's great to get the more California perspective, because I assume maybe, well, and the Midwest, too. Yeah, no, yeah, our, our, our sourcing, we work with, um, we work with a couple of different, um, dairy, um, you know, aggregators. Organic Valley is one of them for organic and, and they're a cooperative that is nationwide. Um, but dairy is, yeah, dairy has been in a, a pretty, I mean, a very deep crisis. And, and so it's one in which, like, we would love to set some sort of minimum requirement, but we're trying to figure out what. Sure. Um, to the other, you know, other ingredients, so like cocoa would be one, right, where we know there's a lot of, yeah. um, you know, risks within cocoa, whether it's child labor, um, exploited labor, um, low wages, um, et cetera. So those are ones for which we've set um, requirements that need to have um, some elements of like fair labor, so be it Fair Trade International, Fair Trade USA, or Fair mm-hmm. for Life. Okay. So in, in one of the ways in which we try to create both flexibility from a sourcing side, but also ensuring there's that, um, you know, integrity is, is giving options. So we evaluate the various, the various certifications that exist and then mm-hmm. say, okay, these are our options from which to choose. Gotcha. Uh, so that's kind of, those, those are areas in which we try and, um, you know, prioritize those, those ingredients. Palm oil is another one yeah. where um, we've, um, yeah, so, you know, most palm oil is sourced from Southeast Asia. And so um, a lot of habitat um, destruction and um, environmental and labor issues as well that mm. are associated with it. And so we have a requirement that it be um, roundtable sustainable palm oil 
um, or um, certified. So that's one, another one. And then we also have uh, requirements for um, sugar cane, uh, where it's um, organic and wheat as well. Um, and then we have, because of the Epic line, we have meats, we have requirements for um, GAP certification. So GAP is the Global Animal Partnership, and we have, um, they, they are on a kind of continuum step level, one, two, three, four, five, and so we have um, kind of minimum requirements set out for those. So those are just some examples, and um, if people want to know more, um, all the details actually are in our um, Sustainability Highlights Report, which we just launched um, earlier this year and is available through the General Mills website. Great, great. Well, I have one last question just as, uh, you know, so much of the, the push for uh, when, I, when I think about other, whether it's working promoters of healthy soil or strong labor practices, um, these may come from uh, activists, environmental scientists. I'm wondering, do you think that some of the other communities that are pushing for some of the values that uh, I, I described that, that come out of the Green New Deal resolution. Do you think there's something special or different about that message coming from a food company? And I, I especially think that, you know, you, you have all the, 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 the marketing power of, of these four brands and General Mills. What, what makes the, the voice different when it comes from a food company versus... Um, public sector or activism or scientist government? Yeah, it's a really interesting question, and I think it's not an either-or. I think it's an every, you know, every one, but I think the opportunity with a food company is, especially with a company like General Mills, um, I mean, we're in more than 95% of households, so we have a lot of reach mm. um, through virtue of the, the product portfolio that we have and social media, again, millions of people that we can, we can reach. And so it's an opportunity to amplify a message and to um, help be one more voice to say that this is important. Uh, but I think it's, it's one of those areas where, uh, you know, we, we also want to make sure that we're, we're not you know, going into areas where people are not inviting us. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, a, it's a balancing act between them because um, I think that we'd be the first to say we're always learning. And, um, you know, that means from people who eat our products but also people who, who don't eat our products and, 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 and want to, you know, bring up certain issues. And, you know, we want to amplify messages that we think are really important, but we also want to hear what others um, want to know from us, and I think one of the biggest things we can do is be transparent and be accountable for our actions, and that's really what we're seeking to do, um, to be a voice for change. Um, and, and right now, you know, when it comes to policy, we, we've been stimulated in, in some regards to, on progress, and I think it's all the more reason for, for companies to step up. And, and the mm -hmm. truth is, you yeah. know, companies do have a big footprint um, sure. on, on some of these issues that we, we all you know, care about and want to take action on. And so I think it's, it's our responsibility to, to be a voice um, in addition to, to being an act, you know, actively yeah. making change happen. And do policymakers, environmental activists, uh, scientists, do, do they often reach out to you to sort of, you know, that 95% of households that you, that yeah. Annie's is present in? 
Yeah, well, you know, on the policy side, it's interesting because we we do have, you know, through organic, I mean, organic itself is a policy mechanism, right? It's, yeah. a, it's a regulatory um, standard. So, you know, each year, myself and other members on my team, we go to the Hill and we meet with congressional representatives and we talk to them about the things that are important to us as a, as a as a company, but also as a community. And I think that's one of the things like, for anything when it comes to policy is singular actors don't tend to have as much sway, but together, collaboratively, they do. Um, it's the same thing with citizens, right? You know, each yeah. of us has a voice, but together it's much more powerful. And so I think those are ways in which to, we try to engage with policy. And, and certainly with scientists, I mean, I always look for opportunities to to have diverse audiences in the room. And I think, you know, if, if any of us remains too siloed, um, we are almost guaranteed to make mistakes along the way because we're not getting a full holistic perspective. And so the better um, in which we're starting to bring in diverse perspectives, diverse communities, the more we learn um, and can correctively change course <laughs> if we need to, to, to more fully account for um, what is challenges we're encountering and how we can help to address yeah. them. Yeah. Well, we need to close out our time and to follow the lunch agenda tradition, I would love to ask you for your action item before we say goodbye. So this is one simple thing that listeners can do in their own life to change the food system for better. So Shauna, what, what would you encourage your lunch agenda listeners to do? I would love um, our lunch agenda listeners to go visit a farm, um, mm. and, and I'm going to break this up into two pieces. I okay. think you should visit a farm where you live, so you get to know your own kind of regional mm. um, system, but then also one in a different part of the country, and if you're so lucky, in a different part of the world, mm. um, because getting to know farmers who grow the food that you eat is such a critical piece of understanding um, our food system, and I think the more we understand who they are and, and what challenges they face and what they love about what they do, I think the better informed we'll be in, in when we eat. Well, that's wonderful. And uh, for those who can't make it to the farm this week, there are, uh, in the, our past episodes, we have heard from farmers in Oklahoma, Nebraska, New Hampshire, South Carolina. I think I've got all of them. So it's not the same thing as visiting their farms, but you get a little taste just by listening. So... Sean, I want to make sure listeners can know how to follow you. Uh, you are at S.J. Sadowski. That's S-A-D-O-W-S-K-I on Twitter. Did I get that right? That's right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then, of course, you can follow, follow Jenner Mills, Annie's, Epic, Cascadian Farms. I cracked and got onto Instagram this week and then <laughs> looked at Annie's Mac and Cheese and went downstairs to see if I had a box because it just overcame me. Um, so Instagram is a dangerous place, but you can now follow me there at Soil Soul Food. Same as my Twitter handle at Soil Soul Food. Um, thank you so much, Rana, for joining us today. This is a really exciting conversation. Next week, we're going to expand on some of how uh, food companies play a role. We'll be talking with the global values manager of Ben and Jerry's ice cream. So if this week made you hungry, look out next week, we got ice cream. Um, It's been a great pleasure having you and uh, lunch agenda listeners. We will see you next week. Have a great Thanksgiving. Thank you so much. It's been an honor. 